Before we speak about Muhammad al-Fatih, Rahmatullah alayhi, I want to go right to the beginning. And this is the time of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa And I want you to imagine this. And I really want you to imagine this. Imagine that you live far away from the superpowers of the day. And the superpowers of the day regard you as such that they don't even want to rule you. They don't think you're worth ruling. And then you bring a message which is embraced by billions for the last 1400 years that they will hold to this message with their lives and souls. Imagine you live far away from the intellectual hubs of the time. And you can't even read and write. You're unlettered, you're ummi. But with pinpoint accuracy, you tell the stories of Qawm Aad, Qawm Thamud. You tell the stories of Adam alayhi Nuh, Idris, Yaqub, Ibrahim, Yusuf alayhi salatu The Sahaba bear testimony that one day before the battle of Badr, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu said that tomorrow, so and so mushrik leader will fall here, the other one will fall here, the other one will fall here. And exactly where the Messenger of Allah said, that was exactly where they fell. Imagine you're all alone. Really, you got no sport. But you still carry on with the dawah. You know the mushrikeen? They used to do hajj, but they had their own way of doing hajj. And the Prophet would go to the tents of the mushrikeen and one after the other he would call them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He would say, Qulu la ilaha illallah tuflihu. Say la ilaha illallah and you will be successful. And the narrator says, I saw two men. One man, he was going from tent to tent to tent, saying, la ilaha, say, La ilaha illallah, and you will be successful. And there was another man behind him saying, don't listen to this man, he's a liar. I asked, who is the man going from tent to tent? And who is that man following him? He said, the man who's going from tent to tent is a man who regards himself as a prophet, Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the man behind him, who's saying he's a liar, and he has dust in his hand, and he throws it in the face of the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He's his uncle Abu Lahab. And if you take all these narrations together, what would happen there? Some narrations mention when the Prophet sallallahu would enter the tents and he would call them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They would say, why should we believe in a message that you've bought when your own people don't follow you? Others would say, following you is trouble. Others would take up dust and they would throw it into the face of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa Other narrations mention 
that they would spit in his face. They would spit in his face, but never did he stop his dawah. From one tent to the next tent to the next tent he would go. And the narration mentioned at the end of the day, his daughter Zainab, who was only a young girl at the time, she bought him some water. And she gave her father the water and the messenger of Allah is washing his hands. And then he's washing his face, he's washing the spit of his face. And he looks up and he sees the anxious nature. He sees the anxiety in the face of his daughter who has seen her father go through all this. And the Prophet wasallam said, Oh my daughter, do not regard this as disgrace. La ilaha illallah. He said, do not regard this as disgrace. People spit in your face for the sake of Allah. And the messenger of Allah said, do not regard this as a disgrace of my daughter. For I swear by Allah, a day will come that this deen will reach the home of every baked and unbaked home. And we bear testimony to the statements of the Prophet ﷺ. One of the darkest moments in the history of the Sahaba عنهم, was the battle of Khandaq, the battle of Ahzab, the battle of the Confederates. When all the enemies of Islam gathered and they marched on Medina, 11,000 of them marched. The Muslims were only 3,000 strong. 1,000 out of those 3,000 were Munafiqeen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recalls this. And He says that the state of the Muslims was such that it was as though their hearts were about to jump out of their throats. Their hearts had reached their throats. And if it wasn't for the fact that the throats were narrow, their hearts would have jumped out of their mouth. That's how scared they were. And Salman al-Farsi came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and he said, Oh Messenger of Allah, we, the Persians, when we have an army that we can't deal with what we do, is that we dig a trench between us and them. So the Prophet told the Sahaba to dig a trench. Now it's midwinter. There's a famine going on. And the Sahaba come to the Message of Allah and they say, Oh, Message of Allah, we're digging this trench. We've got an army of 11,000, and look at our state. We haven't eaten anything for three days. And they remove their garments from their stomachs, and they have a stone tied to their stomach. And the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam removes his garment and he has two stones tied to his stomach sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then they come to this large boulder. And they can't break this boulder. So they go to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and they say, O oh, Messenger of Allah, this boulder, this, we can't break this boulder. Can you help us break this boulder? The message of Allah is over 50 years old at the time. He's got two stones tied to his stomach. None of the other Sahaba can break it. None of the youngsters. And the Prophet ﷺ comes and he strikes it. And there's a huge spark. And a third of it breaks. And he says, Allah Akbar. And then he strikes it the second time. And there's a huge spark. And then another third one, third breaks. And he says, Allah Akbar. And then he strikes it the third time. And there's a huge spark. And he says, Allah Akbar. And it breaks into small pieces. 
The Sahaba said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, what was that spark about? What was the Allah Akbar about? First time we've ever seen this. And the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Allah showed me through the spark that a day would come that we would take the palaces of Yemen. And then when I struck it the second time, Allah showed me a day would come that we would take the Byzantine lands. The lands of Syria. And when I struck it the third time, Allah showed me through the spark that a day would come that we would take the white palace of the superpower of the day in Madain in Iraq, which belonged to the Persians. The Manafiqeen said, look at this guy. He's promising them that they're going to be a superpower and one of us is scared to go and relieve himself. But the Prophet ﷺ gave these people a vision. He gave them a mission. Within 10 years of Allah recalling that incident, that their throat, that their hearts were jumping out of their throats. Within 10 years, they became the superpower of the day. And this is all a testimony to the fact that the message of Allah وسلم, was sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And do you want to hear something just as amazing as this? The Prophet وسلم, said, 800 years before it happened, he said, you will surely conquer Constantinople. The Amir will be the best of Amirs. The army will be the best of armies. 800 years before it actually happened, the Messenger of Allah predicted this. The center of the Byzantines. But the man really who really firstly credit goes to regarding this is Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. Muawiyah radiallahu anhu was the man who brought the dream of the message of Allah alive. What was the dream? The Prophet wasallam was once in the house of Umm Haram radiallahu anha. And the message of Allah goes to sleep. And he wakes up after a while and he's smiling. And Umm Haram radiallahu anha asked him, O Messenger of Allah, may my mother and my father be sacrificed for you. What's the smile about? The Prophet sallallahu said, I saw in my dream that a day will come that my ummah will go out in jihad and they will be sitting on large ships like kings on thrones. And Umm Haram said, O Messenger of Allah, make dua that I am from amongst them. And then the Messenger of Allah goes sleep and he wakes up again and he's smiling. And Umm Haram says, oh, May my mother and my father be sacrificed for your Messenger of Allah. What's all the smile about? And the Prophet said, I saw in my dream that my Ummah is going to go for jihad. And they will be sitting on large ships like kings on thrones. And she said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, make dua that I am from amongst them. And the Messenger of Allah said, you will be amongst the former. Nothing happened in the life of the Prophet Nothing happened in the life of Abu Bakr. Nothing happened in the life of Umar ibn Khattab. And in the time of Uthman ibn Affan, Muawiyah says, because he wants to bring the dream of the Messenger of Allah. He says to Uthman, he says, allow me to take an army to Cyprus. So Uthman allows him the first navy. First naval expedition in the history of Islam goes to Cyprus 
and Umm Haram is on this ship. They, lead, they reach Cyprus, they take Cyprus, Umm Haram is riding a horse, and the horse is startled. The horse runs, and Umm Haram anha, falls off the horse, and she passes away. Until today, La ilaha illallah, until today, the grave of Umm Haram in Cyprus is a delil upon the prophecy of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Until today, her grave by the Christians is known as the grave of the godly woman. And then comes the time of Muawiyah himself. Now he is Mumir al-Mu'mineen. And he prepares a naval expedition. But where does he prepare it for? He prepares it for Constantinople. And every single Sahabi who was alive at that time, who was able to go, every one of them wanted to be in this expedition. Why? Because there was one of two prophecies guaranteed. Possibly two, but one guaranteed. The one which is possible that you could conquer Constantinople and then you would be the best of armies. That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu prophesied. But if you didn't, then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu still gave them glad tidings. He said, He said, the first army from my Ummah who attacks Constantinople, every single one of them, their sins will be forgiven. You are guaranteed. So Abdullah ibn Umar was in this army. Abdullah ibn Zubair was in this army. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum. But the name that really stands out was Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. The host of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came to Medina, every person wanted the Messenger of Allah to stay with them. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, you see this, this camel of mine, she is commanded by Allah. Wherever she stops, that's where I would sit. Allah commanded the camel of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to stop outside the house of Abu Ayyub radiallahu anhu. He became the host of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abu Ayyub used to stay upstairs, the Messenger of Allah stayed downstairs. Abu Ayyub radiallahu anhu went to the Messenger of Allah and he said, Oh Messenger of Allah, I cannot stay upstairs when you are downstairs. For that entails me walking over your head. And I regard it as disrespectful. The Messenger of Allah said, Listen, I am a person that many people come to visit. If your family is downstairs, it's going to disrupt your family, inconvenience them. Let me stay upstairs. Abu Ayyub Ansari radiallahu anhu said, No, O Messenger of Allah, that can never happen. So then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu moved downstairs. He was the host of the Messenger of Allah. Many virtues. And come the expedition of Constantinople, he's over 80 years old. So they said to him, Abu Ayyub, why do you want to go for? You're over 80 years old. You're going all the way to Constantinople. He said, you stay at home, just chill out. You have enough virtues. You are radiallahu anhum wa radhu an. You are a sahabi, guaranteed jannah, guaranteed maghfirah from Allah. He said, no, no, no. He said, the verses in the Quran, infiru khifafun wa thiqalan. Go in the path of your Lord. May you be light or may you be heavy. May you be old or may you be young. Will never allow me to sit at home. So the Abu Ayyub radiallahu anhu travels from where? From Medina 
from Medina all the way to Constantinople. No planes, no cars, donkeys and horses and camels, that's it. And he traveled all the way there. He's over 80 years old. The battle starts. He falls ill. Then he withdraws from the battle. So Yazid, who was in charge of the army, came to him. And he said, Sheikh, is there anything I can do for you? He said, yes, give the army my salam. And tell them to fight with vigor. And when I die, make sure that you bury me in the furthest land possible of the enemies. So I can say to Allah on the day of judgment, Oh Allah, I went in your path whilst I was living and whilst I was dead as well. So he passes away, radiallahu anhu, and they take his body and they bury it right by the walls of Constantinople because that's the furthest they could go. So Caesar's watching all this. Caesar's watching all this. So he sends a message to Yazid. And he says to Yazid, what's going on here? He said, this is the companion of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it was his wish that he be buried here. So Caesar sent a message back. He said, obviously, you're not as intelligent as your father because his father was Muawiyah radiallahu anhu, who was known for his intelligence. He said, when you go back, I will exhume his body and I will feed it to the dogs. So Yazid said to him, he said, I swear by the one that you disbelieve in and by the one due to whom he is buried here. If you do that, then we will kill every Byzantine in our lands and we will break every church. This had such an impact on him, on Caesar, that Caesar put a guard by the grave of Abu Yubal Ansari. Christian historians mention when the Christians would have a drought, the Christians, they would go to the grave of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari anhu, and they would make dua, they would pray by the grave of Abu Ayyub. The first darbar in the history of Islam wasn't made by the Muslims, it was made by the Christians. The first darbar. So what's so special about Constantinople? Napoleon once said, if the world was one city, one city. Constantinople, Istanbul today would have been its capital. It is the center of the world. It bridges east and west. It is one of the most important cities even until today. In Christendom, for a thousand years, it was the most beautiful city that they had. It was known as Jerusalem the second. When Queen Elizabeth I in 1558, she sent an organ for the Sultan. Queen Elizabeth I. The one going now is Queen Elizabeth II. Just in case your history is not too good. Yeah, she's not 500 years old. But the way she's going and your dua is God save our queen. She might just hit 500. He says, when I entered Constantinople... It was like a different world. He came from London. 
He said, I've never seen any place like it in my life. As far as, as, far as attacking it, Constantinople had 12 miles of walls around it. It's regarded as one of the most impregnable, if not the most impregnable cities in the world. 12 miles of walls, out of those 12 miles, 8 miles was water. From 1123 to 1453, which was the time where Muhammad al-Fatih lay siege to it, it had been attacked, sieged 23 times. The Muslims had sieged it 11 times. Because everybody wanted to fulfill the prophecy of the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Eleven times the Muslims. This was the virtue of Constantinople. Christendom regarded it as the second Jerusalem. Before I move on to the man himself, Muhammad al-Fatih. Who did Muhammad al-Fatih come from? Muhammad al-Fatih came from a group of people called the Ottomans. A brief history to the background is when the Mongols came into East Turkestan, approximately half a million Turks, Turkestanis, they moved into East Turkestan. From amongst them, there was a small group who stamped their name on history. You know, these were people who were homeless, penniless, fleeing for their life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Allah is so beautiful. Allah says in the Quran, we want to favor upon those people who are taken weak upon the earth. We want to make them the imams and we want to make them the inheritors of the lands. If there was any group of people that these words are sadiq upon, it was the Ottomans fleeing for their lives. Fleeing for their life from who? The Mongols. Who were the Mongols? 12, let me tell you, just tell you 1258. 1258 was the year that the Mongols sacked Baghdad. Baghdad was the capital of the Muslim world. It was the Abbasid Caliphate. It was the most advanced city on the face of this earth. And when they sacked it, Approximately 2 million Muslims lived in Baghdad. They killed half of the entire population. They didn't have machine guns or bombs. They would make them wait. You know, like you have a poultry farm. And the chicken knows it's going to be slaughtered. And you pluck that chicken out. Half a million Muslims were slaughtered in Baghdad. In 1258. 1258 was the year... When, when Usman was born, in the darkest moment of the Muslim world, the, the darkest moment, nothing ever in history devastated the Muslim world like the Mongols did. The a Muslims would say, If anybody tells you that the Mongols have been defeated, these were people of Iman saying this. If anybody ever tells you that the Mongols have been defeated, don't believe them because the Mongols are invincible. Invincible in the darkest moment. 1258, the sacking of Baghdad. Uthman is born to Urtugal. That's about the only guy you know of the Ottomans, yeah? Actually, he wasn't even a part of the Ottomans. 
He came before the Ottomans. It's really interesting. Now, I know this doesn't apply to you guys in Preston. But wherever I have given this talk in, the, in Birmingham, London, etc., I gave him commentary. The guy introduced me. He said, MashaAllah, you guys have all seen, you have all seen the season, Ortogal, MashaAllah. And I'm sitting there thinking that, I said, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, People who would come to a talk would be too embarrassed to ever see that say that they actually watch TV. <laughs> How things have changed. How things have changed. And there's a lesson for two people here. Two people. Not just one person. For those who watch four seasons on a man there's only seven pages written on. Seven pages are written on Urtugal altogether, so four seasons. And also on the religious tabqa, who need to understand what's happening in their community, and things are not as black and white as were when we were youngsters. And if you're going to have that same approach, you're going to have nobody in your masjids. So it's a lesson for both sides, for both ends of the spectrum. For this end of the spectrum, to understand that your deen is not based on seven, you know, seven pages of man's history. And on the other end, what are the influences which are happening in outside? And why is it that people who are non-scholars, hijab artists, you know, have more impact than all the Maldives together in their country? Why is it that they have four or five million followers and you have no followers? And it's not about following, but people are being influenced. And this is why dawah, Allah says, Mawidatul Hasana. Mawidatul Hasana means that you think about your dawah. You think about your dawah. So Urtugal had a son called Usman who was, buried, who was born in 1258 they say that regarding Usman that he had a dream that one day he's sleeping and the heart of a pious man transfers from that pious man into his heart and then a tree grows from his navel and it goes all over the world the shade of it goes all over the world and people live in prosperity underneath it so he had the interpretation done and they said that the interpretation of this is that you will have progeny which will bring prosperity to the Muslim world. You know what the Ottomans, what kind of prosperity they bought? The Ottomans are the longest Muslim empire that ruled. 1258 he was born, 1280 the Ottomans were established. 1924 was when they were finished. There has never been an empire which lasted as long. No the Umayyads, no the Abbasids, no the Muwahidun, no the Mamluks. When everybody else fell apart. When the Abbasids fell, when the Khwarzim fell, when the Mamluks fell, when the Muwahidun fell, when the Murabitun fell, when there was no other empire to defend the Muslims, it was the Ottomans for 600 years. They ruled all the world, North Africa, all the way up to Tunisia and Algeria. 
They, they ruled Egypt. They ruled Syria, all of Sham. That means Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. They ruled Iraq. They ruled three harams, all the three harams, Makkah, Medina, and Al-Aqsa were under the Ottoman. They ruled Turkey. They ruled great swathes of Eastern Europe. This is where Muhammad Al-Fatih came from. Muhammad Al-Fatih was from the progeny of Ortogal and Uthman. His father was Murad Athani. Now Murad Athani was a man who had also attacked Istanbul, lay siege to it for 22 days and then come back. Every, honestly, this is no exaggeration, every single person that I have ever studied, hero, had two qualities. Hero in Muslim world. One was tarbiyah. Even if they had no father, their mothers made sure that they had tarbiyah. Every single one. And he was no different. His father Murad Thani was very concerned about his son's tarbiyah. They say Muhammad al-Fatih, whilst he was a young kid, he wouldn't listen to his teachers. Every time a teacher would come, he would disobey him. So Murad Thani called all his wazid and he said, find me a man who can discipline my child. They said Imam Qurani. Imam Qurani was known as the Imam Abu Hanifa of his time. He wrote commentaries on Bukhari. He was Kurdi in, 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 in uh, ethnicity. So Imam Qurani comes, so he says to Muhammad al-Fatih, who's just a young boy at that time, and he says to him, I'm your new teacher. Muhammad al-Fatih looks at him, he's the Sultan's son. Nowadays you can't control the Maulvis and the Peel's son. And he's the Sultan's son. So he laughs at Muhammad, Sheikh Qurani, uh, rahimahullah. So Sheikh Qurani was old style, he takes out the stick and he gives him a good beating. They say that he could hardly read the Quran. By the age of eight, he became a hafid of the Quran. The son of the Sultan. Today, if a child in the UK becomes hafid at the seven, you have YouTube videos going around. The son of the Sultan, Muhammad Al-Fatih could speak eight languages. Eight languages. Arabic, Persian, Turkish, they say uh, Latin, Italian, Serbian, and a couple of others. Eight languages he could speak. Imam Qurani instilled in him the love for knowledge. They say he was a historian. But the sheikh who had the biggest impact upon him was a man called Shamsuddin Aq. Shamsuddin Aq was a sheikh and he was also his teacher. He was the one who instilled in him the belief that he would be the conqueror of Constantinople. One day they're by the shore. So the Ottomans now, they spread, they reach here, Constantinople is here. The only thing between the two is the sea. So one day, Sheikh Shamsuddin, he takes his horse to the shore, and then he takes his horse into the sea. And he says to Muhammad, bring your horse into the sea. When the water reaches the neck, say, you see over there? That's Constantinople. You will one day be the conqueror of Constantinople. Subhanallah. They say one positive teacher. Historians write, look, what one positive teacher can do to a human being? 
The man changed the landscape of history. Landscape of history. This was one. The second quality, wallah, I have found in every single leader is that they had respect for ilm and they had respect for all scholars. I have never ever studied, maybe Nuruddin, maybe Salahuddin, maybe Yusuf bin Tashfeen, any, any leader who did not have a respect for the scholars, although they were leaders, but they respected the scholars and they respected ilm. You know how much he respected scholars? One of his employees didn't like the verdict of the Qadi, so he decided to beat him up. So when the news came to Muhammad al-Fatih, Muhammad al-Fatih said that I will have this youngster executed. The scholar said, you can't do that. He, oh, okay, he shouldn't beat a Qadi up, but you can't have him executed. He said, no. He said, the reason that he had, the reason that he beat him up was that he didn't like his verdict on the Sharia. And if he didn't like his verdict on the Sharia, that means he, he didn't like the Sharia. Or he opposed the Sharia. And he belittled, by belittling the Qadi, he belittled the Sharia. So eventually they convinced him that you can't beat him up. I mean, you can't have him killed. So he agreed. So now this youngster comes in to apologize. So when he comes to Muhammad al-Fatih, Muhammad al-Fatih was a mujahid. So he gave him a good beating. Later on, this young man became a Qadi. And they asked him, how did you become a Qadi? He said, it was because of the beating of Muhammad al-Fatih. And as we're at beating, let me tell you another example of what Sheikh Shams, Shamsuddin did to Muhammad al-Fatih. One day they were walking, and he's still quite young, a young man. His teacher begins to beat him for no reason. No reason. So he takes the beating. And then a few years later, he says, Sheikh, I want to ask you a question. He said, what? He said, you know that day you beat me? Why did you beat me? I couldn't see any apparent reason. He said, son, I'm glad you asked me that question. You know the reason I beat you? is because you were destined to be the Sultan. And I wanted you to know what oppression feels like. So when you oppress other people, when they're at the receiving end, you know what it felt like being on the receiving end. Look at the subhanallah. So Muhammad al-Fatih reaches the age of 21. Actually, even before this, when he was 14 years old, look at his tarbiyah. His father annexed a portion of land and he made him the sultan of that piece of land at the age of 14 years old. How old are you, young man? How old are you? All right, younger than these two. Younger than these two. He annexed the land and he said, you are the sultan. So the Christian, when they heard it, they got very happy. So they decided to bring an army to attack. So Muhammad al-Fatih now sends a message to his father and he says to my father, he said, look, the army is about to attack. I can't handle this. Help me. He said, no, no, you're the sultan. You deal with it. So Muhammad al-Fatih was Muhammad al-Fatih. He said, listen, if it's your land, then you come and defend it. And if I am the Sultan, then I am commanding you to come and defend it. <laughs> so now he reaches 21 years old, his father passes away, Murad al-Thani. 
And they say, Muhammad al-Fatih, look at this, subhanAllah. Muhammad al-Fatih many times heard his father make the dua. That, oh Allah, make my son the conqueror of Constantinople. The Prophet sallallahu said, there is no hijab. There is no veil between the dua of the parents for their children. So he passes away, his son is 21 years old. La ilaha illallah. And Europe is happy. Because this is their greatest agitator, Murad Thani. He was the thorn in their side. So Francesco, he writes a letter to all the leaders of Europe and he says, glad tidings. Murad is dead and his son is inexperienced and he doesn't know what he's doing. Look at this, subhanAllah. The man that they were happy, they rejoiced that he came on the throne was the man who fulfilled the prophecy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Makaru wa makarullah wallahu khayrul makirin. Plan and plot. And when Allah plans and plots, it's a different thing. Not only that, listen to this. And I say, I'll come back to this in a minute. So Muhammad, so, so, they're, so they're happy that, he, that, that Muhammad al-Fatih's father's passed away. And they rejoice. Look at Muhammad al-Fatih's mother. Muhammad al-Fatih's mother, who's just become a widow. Muhammad al-Fatih, they say he's sitting in the room, he, he, he's crying. And she came in the room, she said, son, get up. We have things to do. We have things to do. And then Muhammad al-Fatih, now he prepares and his preparation is meticulous. Now listen to this brothers and listen to this very carefully. If you want to do something, do it properly, otherwise don't do it. And if you're doing it for the deen, it should be done properly. I, I will do the whole talk, you will, I, it will be online one day inshallah. Yeah, the narrative, but I want you to take lessons from this. If you want to do something, do it properly. Muhammad al-Fatih, the preparation was meticulous. He employed a man called Urban. Urban was a Christian Hungarian specialist in making armor and, and making weapons. He said to Urban, he said, Urban, make me a cannon. Nothing like it in the world. He said, he said I will, Sultan, I will make you a cannon which will destroy the walls of Babylon. He said, I will give you whatever it takes. So he makes him a cannon. Nothing like this in the world. The ball was 50, it could fire a ball which was 15 kg, 1500 kg. For an entire mile, a man could crawl into its barrel. It had to be pulled by 60 oxes and 200 men on both sides. And then he drew a treaty with everybody he felt that could impede him. So he drew a treaty with the, the, the Serbians, with the Hungarians, with the Bulgarians, all of them. And then he raised the taxes because he understood that warfare is a, a hefty, it, it costs a lot of money. And then on the Bosphorus, you already, on the Bosphorus, you already had one fort, which his grandfather made. On the other side of the Bosphorus, he made another fort. So nobody now could reach Constantinople. The only way you could reach Constantinople is that you had to go between these two forts. And they put their cannons on both forts. But the interesting about this thing about this fort is, 
that Muhammad al-Fatih worked himself. The Sultan worked himself. He made the ulama work. He made all the princes work. In three months with their own hands, they built this. Why? Because they say regarding Muhammad al-Fatih, he was a historian and he understood history. And if you understand history, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam made Masjid Nabwi by himself. Abu Bakr, Umar, or whoever was there at the time, the greatest of this ummah worked with their hands. The narration mentioned when the Prophet would carry the bricks, he would bend over like this. So the Sahaba said, Oh Messenger of Allah, let us carry it. And the Prophet said, Go and take that brick over there. The narration mentioned that you couldn't tell between the front and the back of the Messenger of Allah. That's how full he was of dust. But he worked. And if you want this Ummah to prosper, if you want Preston to prosper, work. Even if you're a multi-millionaire, work. It's good for your own Islah. Get dirty. Yeah, clean the toilets. You can't clean the toilets. No, man, you, you first, second generation. You can't clean the toilets. But Mane can clean the toilets. Liverpool footballer, world famous can clean the toilets. But you and I can't clean the toilets. For your own Islah, do the dirty work. For your own Islah, do the khidmah. You know, this was the unique thing about the elders. They had the uh, jazbah of khidmah. You know what makes Mane special? I'll tell you why, because he's come from Africa. Like your fathers and forefathers came from India and Pakistan. They could do the work. But now, you know, you, you, you are CEO at your company. You got a degree from so-and-so. You ain't going to do the, the menial work. No, do the menial work because it's good for your own islah. Muhammad al-Fatih, that's where you get the barakah. Worked with his own hands. And he made the princes work. And he made the ulama work. And then, and then the time is ready. So what's happening now? Now this is very interesting. Why don't you listen to this carefully? Caesar's watching all this. Caesar's watching all this. And he knows there's something funny going on. So he now sends a message to the Pope. And he says, I need your help. But there was a problem in Christendom. What was the problem? They were divided into two. You had the Orthodox Church, whose capital was Constantinople. And then you had Catholicism, whose capital was Rome, Western Europe. They both regarded each other as kafirs. They both e regarded each other as heretics. So, Pope said, we will help you on one condition. That all of you become Catholics, we will help you. So Caesar, who was very desperate, agreed. So they come to the Sophia Hagia. You know where the Sophia Hagia? The largest church in Christendom, the largest orth in Orthodox Christendom, was the Sophia Hagia. So they came, the Pope sent his delegation to sign. The second in charge after Caesar stood up in the church and he said his famous words. He said, we prefer the turbans of the Turks rather than the long hats of the Latins, of the Catholics. Meaning we prefer the Muslims over the Catholics. 
And then the Catholics left. And they had nobody to help them besides orthodoxy. Now, I want to ask you a question. You ask any Christian today, do you agree with that statement? They would say, no, of course we don't. The Catholics were better than the Muslims. They would all say that. But when you're in the mix, when you're in the rumble, then you don't see all this. You don't see the long vision. And this is wallahi. Middle East, you see the Middle East burning. You see the ikhtilaf in the Muslim ummah. Even our local ikhtilafs. Look at, look at the state, look at what's happening in your schools. Look at what's happening around you. Look at how many people are turning away from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you've got trivial issues to discuss. You, you are on ikhtilaf. And we need to learn from history. Mulana was saying that you learn from history. You learn from history. Don't make the same mistakes. Have a vision. Look at what your children are going through. Let me ask you, uh, now you, I'm, I'm sure you know about it now. You're in two, three years. You know what's going to be happening, what's going to be taught to your children at school from the age of four. Let me tell you, what have you done to, for it? What have you done for it? How many of you have been motivated? Are you not concerned about the iman of your children? Are you not concerned about the iman of your children? How many of you, now let me serious question, how many of you have now endeavored to build bridges with communities, Muslims of different ethnicity? Because of the predicament, you should have done it anyway, but if you don't see it now, then you will never see it. You will never see it. And learn from history. You know the Byzantine Empire that they lost? Let me tell you about the Byzantine Empire. You know when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alif, Lam, Mim, Ghulibati, Rum. This room does not mean Rome. It means Byzantine. Allah was speaking about the Byzantine Constantinople. They were known as the Mamlekatul Rum. Rome was known as Mamlekatul Roma or Roman. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that a time will come, that the, the, that the Romans who have been defeated, and a time will come that they will defeat the Persians. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when they defeat the Persian, the Muslim will be happy. Why does Allah say this? Because these were Christians, they were people of the book. Now, the mushrikeen of Makkah were mushriks, and the Persians were, they used to worship fire. So when they defeated the Christians, they were very, very happy. And they said to the Muslims, look, our brethren who worship fire have defeated the Christians who are your brethren. And they were indicating soon we will defeat you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Today Rome have been defeated, the Byzantines have been defeated. But a day will come that they will defeat the Persians. And then Allah says, And on that day, the Muslims will be happy with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is speaking about Rome here. Not Rome, but Allah is speaking about the Byzantines. These Byzantinians were the longest empire in the history of Christianity. 
Longest empire in the history of Christianity. There was no empire which lasted as long as they did. They lost it. They lost it to the Muhammad al-Fatih, alhamdulillah. But what about the ikhtilaf? So the Pope and his men all go back. And then Muhammad al-Fatih, now he brings the cannons and he places them outside Constantinople. And Muhammad al-Fatih has an army of 150,000 men. And he looks at the tank, he looks at the, at, at the cannons, and he looks to the skies, and he says, I will take Constantinople with the words of truth. Not the cannons, not the 150,000, but with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the narration mentioned that they fired the first cannon. People had heard nothing like it. You could hear the noise for 13 miles away. When it hit the wall, it pulverized the wall. The people of Constantinople, they came out crying and screaming. One of the Muslim historians says, Wallahi, it was like Israfil had blown the trumpet. We thought it was Qiyamat. And then the historian mentioned, but, but, when the Muslim shouted Takbir, Allah Akbar, it was even more pulverizing than the cannon itself. The name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then after a while, the Muslim now they attack. So now they're scaling the wall. So what the people of Constantinople do is that they pour hot water, hot oil over the Muslims. And one of the historians, the Christian historians, he, 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 he recalls this. He says, and I'll put it in my own words. He says that the Muslims made a shooting gallery for us. He said they would come close quarters and they would all die. He said then when one of their men would fall close to the wall, another man, now, he, now I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his words, he says another Muslim would come and pick him up, although he was dead, and he would throw him over his shoulder like you throw a pig. And then he would run with him. And he would say that this was a shooting gallery for us. He said, we would shoot and we would kill the other one as well. He said, then another one would come to pick them two up. And another one would come. He said, sometime they would lose 10 men for just one man. But the Muslim could never live with the shame of not burying their comrade. They couldn't live with the shame. And then you have uh, the other historian, a French traveler, he says, he met the Muslims in 1430. So 1453 was the conquest of Constantinople. And he says what he witnessed himself. He said they were diligent, willing, rise early and live on little. They are indifferent to where they sleep and usually lie on the ground. Their horses are good, cost little in food, gallop well and for a long time. Their obedience to their superiors is boundless. When the signal is given, those who are to lead march quietly off, followed by others with the same silence. 10,000 Turks on such an occasion will make less noise than a hundred Christian men. I must own that in my various experiences, I have always found the Turks to be frank and loyal. And when it was necessary to show courage, they, were, they have never failed to do so. Now this was what they were like. Muhammad al-Fatih himself, he says, I went to the marketplace to buy something. He said, I bought something 
And the shopkeeper said to me, go now, to, now when I bought one thing, he said, go now to buy from that person. And he had a disguise on, so he couldn't recognize him. He said, why? He said, because I have enough to feed my children for tonight. You go to that person. Muhammad Fatih went to him, he bought something from him. And then he wanted to buy something else. He said, don't go to that person. He said, why? He said, because I have enough to feed my children tonight. Muhammad Fatih, when he said this, he said, now I know that I have that army which the Prophet ﷺ spoke about. Look at this, subhanAllah. I have that army with the message of Allah ﷺ spoke about. Why was it possible for having people like this? Let me tell you one thing. Because they had a leader like Muhammad al-Fatih. You know, if you want anything done in your community, you have to make the first sacrifice. Don't give the orders. Show the way. They say about Muhammad al-Fatih, he would go into the battlefield first. Many times he was injured, he would take his horse until the water would reach its throats. When they had the siege of Constantinople, Muhammad al-Fatih would stay up every night for over 50 days. Khalil Basha, his wazir, when he came in, he said, by Allah, my side has not touched this bed. Hilmi Danishmand is a Turkish historian. He says, Muhammad al-Fatih became the Sultan at 21. He besieged Constantinople at 23. He says, every year, every day, for two years, Muhammad al-Fatih would check the maps of Constantinople. On preparation. For two years, every single day, he would check the maps of Constantinople before he attacked it. Every day. Muhammad al-Fatih would bring something new, new dynamic to the battlefield. So they found it very difficult to scale the walls. The narrations mentioned that Muhammad al-Fatih, what he did is that he created a frame which was higher than the walls. So the Christians wake up one morning and they see a frame higher than the walls. It had three floors. Each floor was covered with skin so you couldn't pour anything over it. It had a passage which went for a half a mile to the Muslim lines. One of the historians, the Christian historian says, he says, if the entirety of Christendom had gathered, it would have taken um, over a month to make something like this. And Muhammad al-Fatih did it over a night. They burnt it right at the end of the day. And Muhammad al-Fatih said, no problem. Tomorrow, we will build another four. Another four. You see, brothers, in anything that you do, you need to be dynamic. The Prophet ﷺ in the house of Umm Haram, listen to this very, very carefully, very carefully. If you take nothing away from this talk beside this point, the Prophet ﷺ was lying in the house of Umm Haram. It's not just a good story. And he woke up and he said, my people will have ships, naval ships. The Prophet ﷺ had never ever sat on a ship. He never sailed on a ship. Say, Mama, in his life, nothing happened in his life. Nothing happened in the life of Abu Bakr. Nothing happened in the life of Umar. But what was he giving the Sahaba? He was giving them a vision. He was giving them goals. You know, be achievers. When Salman al-Farsi came to the Prophet sallallahu and he said, Messenger of Allah, we dig trenches. The Prophet sallallahu said, yeah, we'll dig a trench. 
When Salman al-Farsi said to the Messenger of Allah, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we build catapults. The Prophet said, Sahaba, build a catapult. When Salman al-Farsi said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we have a thing called the Dababa, which was known as the tank of the time. The Prophet on the same occasion said, O oh, Sahaba, build the Dababa. And then after the battle, the Prophet sent two men, two men. And he said, go and find the most advanced Dababas in Sham and copy them and bring the news back to us. Brothers, that's what Muslims are meant to be like. Your madarsas, your masjids, your homes. You're meant to be dynamic people. The Prophet look, you know, they talk about one year vision, 10 year vision. Yeah, you guys all know about this. Yeah. Yeah, mashallah, I'm sure many of you are high flyers. I, I deal with a lot of high flyers, mashallah, real amazing people. God, mashallah, so much much for us to give, but they all want to be chiefs, none of them want to be Indians. No, look, in your work, you be the chief. For the deen of Allah, be an Indian and be a chief. When you do the work of Allah, be an Indian, be a chief. You know why? Because when you're chief all the time, it gets to your head. You want to come to the masjid and you want to be a chief. When you work for the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet said, Sayyid al-Qawmi khadimahum. The leader of any nation is the one who does the khidmah. The one who cleans the toilets. The one who opens the masjid. The one who gives the adhan. The one who cleans the masjid. Do you know what the virtue of cleaning the masjid is? The Prophet said, if you ever, if you ever see a person cleaning the masjid, Look, maintaining masjid. The Prophet said, give witness to this man that he believes in Allah. Give shahada that this man believes in Allah. The Prophet said, listen, the message of Allah, there was a woman, African woman, Bukhari narration. She used to clean the masjid. That's it. All she used to do is clean the masjid. She passed away. And the Prophet said, where is this woman? They said, oh, message of Allah, uh, she passed away, we buried her. And the narration mentioned, they, they didn't regard her too much. Narration, they didn't th think that she was too much because she wasn't a Badri, she wasn't a Muhajirun, she wasn't Ansar, she didn't give great mashwaras. The narration mentioned that Prophet was sitting down, he got up from his place, he went straight to her grave in Jannatul Baqi and he prayed Janazah upon her grave. He wanted to show the status of this woman who was a slave, African descent. But Prophet Allah, why? Why? Because she did the work. You do work according to your capacity. You do work according to your capacity. And this is, this is the thing. So every day Muhammad al-Fatih would bring an, a, a new thing. <coughs> Muhammad al-Fatih, you know the, the, the morale now. Often, the morale is 50 days. Sometimes the morale wasn't too good. M Muslims had huge losses. So what would Muhammad al-Fatih do? Sometimes he would go, he would disguise himself as a soldier. He would go around the Muslim ranks. He would see what the situation was. And then he would take off his disguise and he would give a talk. And he would say to the Muslims, I said, oh Muslims, don't you want to be from the army regarding who the Prophet wasallam said, the best of armies? La ilaha illallah. He would point to the grave of Abu Yubal Ansari radiallahu anhu. And he would say, Look at this man radiallahu anhu. Look where he traveled from. And I say, I said, Look at the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. 
Even from their graves they inspire. Even from their graves. What was the state in Constantinople? Constantinople, the state wasn't too good. So they had this relic, which was regarded as the most uh, precious relic within Christendom. So it was a, a, a drawing, a painting that they believed that St. Lucas had painted. You might have seen it. You know like nowadays, you know when they take a picture, they go like this. Yeah? The man. So this was a picture. You, know, you can see it online. It's still there. It, it's basically Mary holding Jesus in her arms and she's going like this. And saying that he will be the savior of humanity. This was regarded as the most precious relic in orthodox Christianity. They believed that as long as they had this, that Constantinople could never be conquered. Never be conquered. So... What they decided on the 25th of May is to take this to all the corners of the city and have it blessed. So they place it on a the cart. They take it to the corners of the city. It falls off the cart. They're panic-strucken. It takes them ages, because when you panic, it takes them ages to lift it. Eventually, they put it back on the uh, cart. There's a downpour, it begins to rain, and the procession is cancelled. 25th of May. 26th of May, the Sophia Hagia, and this is a Christian historian, not Muslim historians. Christ, uh, on the 25th, 26th of May, the Sophia Hagia is struck by lightning. So now the situation gets very desperate. If you believe in superstition, this is what happens. And this is exactly what happened. Now, the Muslims have one major problem. And that major problem is that Constantinople is surrounded by water. So 12, 8 miles is surrounded by water and 8, only 4 miles is land. So they're attacking by land but they cannot attack by water. To get to the water, there's a place called the Golden Horn. The Golden Horn has a chain. So when the Christian ships go through, they lower the chain and they go past. When the Muslim ships go past, they straighten the chain and it destroys the hull of the ship and the ship sinks. So this happens all the time. Now, so Muhammad al-Fatih thinks. And here, subhanallah, Muhammad al-Fatih rahimahullah pulls off one of the greatest moves in the, in the history of military. It's an amazing move he pulls off. He sees how can he take his ships there. He can't get through to the golden horn. So overnight, in one night, Muhammad al-Fatih cradles 67 ships out of the water. He takes them out of the water under the noses of the enemies. And then they have these logs. So they grease the logs with animal fat. And then they put the ships on these logs and they're pulled by oxes. And this is not for one mile, this is for many, many miles. And it's not flat land. Some of the land is 200 feet high. 200 feet above seawater. In one night, Muhammad al-Fatih rahimahullah takes 67 ships under the noses of his enemies. Next morning, the Christians wake up and they see 67 ships in their backyard. 
Can you imagine that morale is not good anyway? The Christian historians mentioned, he said, Muhammad, he said, we had never ever seen anything like this. They said, Muhammad, this is a Christian historian saying, they say, Muhammad al-Fatih made the mountains his waves. They say, by doing this, Muhammad al-Fatih surpassed Alexander the Great. So then Muhammad al-Fatih sends a message to his army and he says to them, tomorrow night, each camp you light three fires. So the people of Constantinople think that we've had reinforcements. So each one lights three fires and this also destroys the morale to a greater degree. And then he sends a letter to Caesar. He says to Caesar, he said, look, we don't want any more bloodshed. Give us the city. And we will give you total and utter security. Caesar sends a message back. He said, you know, I can't do that. So Muhammad al-Fatir says his famous statement. He says, either the city or my grave. One of the two. And then Muhammad al-Fatir at night time, he tells them, he said, all night, la ilaha illallah. Look at this. He says, all night, make sure you remain in worship. He tells his army. He said, tomorrow we will attack. Tonight you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help. So all night they stay in worship. And then the next day, Muhammad al-Fatih gives the order and they attack. And they attack the city. And the city falls. 29 men scale the wall. They plant the flag. Every single one of them is martyred. And the city falls. And then later on in the day, Muhammad al-Fatih entered the city. But who's at the front? Who's at the front? His teacher, Shamsuddin Aq. You know, throughout the battle, La ilaha illallah, you know, there were times when things weren't too good. So he sent a message to his teacher and he said, Sheikh, things are not too good. The narration mentioned they went and he's reading the Quran and the Sheikh turned to it. He said, son, man plans and Allah plans and Allah is the best of planners. He said, on another occasion, he wanted to see a sheikh and when he reached there, the guard said, nobody's allowed to go in. This is the sultan, he's stopping the sultan. He said, the sheikh said, nobody's allowed to go in. He said, no, I need to see the sheikh. The guard is stopping him. He moves the guard to the side. He enters the tent and he finds his sheikh in sajda. His turban has fallen off his head. His hair are in the dust. And after a long time, the sheikh comes out of sajda. And Muhammad al-Fatih walks out and he says, I swear by Allah, knowing that I have men like this in my army is more greater to me than conquering Constantinople. So when the occasion came, the sultan didn't take the lead. His sheikh took the lead, he entered the city. And now imagine this, they enter the city. And Muhammad al-Fatih now gathers his 150,000 men. And he says to his 150,000 men, he reminds them of the words of the message of Allah sallallahu There's one thing giving this talk in Preston. And there's one thing saying these words on the conquest of Constantinople. And he said, men, remember what the message of Allah sallallahu said about you. 150,000 men. He said, oh men, remember that the Messenger of Allah said that you are the best of armies. And then Muhammad al-Fatih from there, he moved on to the Sophia Hagia. And he reaches the Sophia Hagia. And outside the Sophia Hagia, now this is the largest church in Orthodox Christendom. He goes into Sajda. 
Then he takes some dust and he pours the dust on his head out of humility. And they finish the mass. They come out of the they come out, and then Muhammad al-Fatih enters into the church. The adhan is given, and Sheikh Shams leads the Dhuhr Salah. Now some say, oh, but why did he turn the church into a masjid? Firstly, Muhammad al-Fatih is on record saying that he would prefer that next to every masjid that there is a church. For those who want to pray, who are Christian, they pray in the church. For those who are Muslim, they pray in the masjid. But we have to understand the context of this. See, on the other end of the Mediterranean, you had Spain. This was 1453. Spain, every single masjid was turned into a church. The Qurtaba Masjid, you heard of the Qurtaba Masjid, yeah? According to many historians, was once upon a time the largest masjid in the world. Bigger than the two harams. Bigger than Makkah and bigger than Medina. But they are all unanimous that if it was smaller than Makkah haram, it was bigger than Medina haram. So this is what was going on over there. Muhammad al-Fatih changed Constantinople. Constantinople began to be known as the refuge of the world. Anybody who needed help would come and live in Constantinople. So Muhammad al-Fatih now fulfills the prophecy of the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Does he stop there? It is a stop there. When Europe heard about this, 